I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on Cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on Cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're on the Patriots bye week. We're going to be doing a lot of Celtics this week. We'll chat with Michael Pina from The Ringer in just a little bit. Get the latest on the Celtics as, of course, they beat the Grizzlies on Monday night. Busy week for the Seas. They'll play Wednesday. They'll play Friday. They'll play Saturday. So it's been a really busy stretch for the Seas. So we'll get into them in greater detail. But I do want to start with the Patriots as we arrive on this bye week. I found it interesting today that... Bill Belichick was talking to the media and he says that the team had been tipping some plays over the past few weeks against both the Jets and the Colts. Obviously, that's not good, but it does really feel like the conversation surrounding this Patriots team is, are they going to show you anything offensively after the bye week? Because it's been really discouraging as of late. And I was starting to think about the last time I felt this bad about the Patriots offense, right? Because There was really never a moment during the Brady era that you felt that way. 2009, the Patriots were not good, but you were not really concerned about Brady. 13, they were not great, but I wasn't concerned personally about Brady. And then they had some issues in 15, but remember what happened after that? They brought Skarniecki out of retirement. So the only other year I could really think of where I was really concerned about the Patriots offensively was 2020 with Cam Newton, right? And if you juxtapose the 2020 season, the Patriots offense then... To this one, it's very similar. And the thing that I find awfully troubling about that is we had all conceded like Cam's not going to be the long-term fix here. It was a lottery ticket. You signed him at the end of the offseason. And now if you look at this team, Mac is supposed to be the future. Mac is supposed to be the quarterback of the Patriots for the next decade or so. And he's producing like Cam Newton was in 2020. If you just look at the numbers, Cam Newton's passer rating in 2020, 82.9. Mac this year, 76. How about yards per game? Mac 190, Cam 177.1. Edge Mac there. Congrats to Mac. How about yards per attempt? Mac this year, 6.8. Cam 7.2. Completion percentage, 66.1% for Mac, 65.8% for Cam. So a little bit of an edge to Mac there. Touchdown percentage, Mac 2.4%, Cam 2.2. Little edge to Mac. Interception percentage, Mac 4.2%, Cam 2.7, so an edge to Cam there. So pretty comparable though, right? Mac has the advantage in yards per game, but Cam's also giving you those 39.5 rushing yards per game that he did in 2020, so total yards, edge to Cam. Mac has the edge slightly in completion percentage and touchdown percentage, Cam the edge in interception percentage, yards per attempt, and rating. So the reason I bring this up is Mac is basically playing at the same level as Cam Newton was in 2020. And the offense in general, the Patriots offense in 2022 is worse than the offense that we saw in 2020. 
Nobody thought that would be the case coming into the season. Nobody wanted to go back to the Cam Newton days when he's throwing the ball into the ground against the San Francisco 49ers. But here we are. The offense looks just as bad, if not worse, than it did in 2020. So if you look at it, score percentage, Patriots this year, 35.9%. They were better, 36.9% in 2020. That means how often are you scoring on your drives? Turnover percentage, the Patriots 16.5% this year, which by the way is 31st in the NFL. They were 12.5% with Cam Newton. Red zone touchdown percentage, Patriots this year 46.2%, that's 29th. They were at 54.2% with Cam Newton, that was 24th in the NFL. Rushing yards per game, of course, Cam contributed to that. 117.2 this year for the Patriots, 16th of the NFL, so right around league average with a great back. And in Cam Newton's season here, 146.6, third in the NFL. Yards per game, just total offense. I mean, both putrid. 319.9 this year, 327.3 in the Cam Newton season. So basically, all the numbers in terms of the offense were better with Cam Newton than they are with Mac Jones. So don't you feel worse right now about the offense? Cam, we knew this isn't going to be a long-term Patriot, right? We were wondering at times, why doesn't he just play Jarrett Stidham? But the Patriots were supposed to be building their whole program, their whole organization, their whole future around Mac Jones. And what the Patriots are getting is an offense that is worse than the one that Cam Newton was running. So this is my whole concern. Year two your franchise quarterback, the signal caller, is essentially the signal caller of the worst offense in the NFL, or at least one of them, right? Besides the Indianapolis Colts, there aren't many offenses that are worse than the Patriots right now. And that's my whole question about Mac. How can anybody be sure that Mac's the guy based on the results you're getting right now? And it is kind of funny to me in a way that no one defended Cam except like a very small portion of the fan base and maybe a couple of people in the media here and there, but not a lot of people defended Cam. But I didn't think Cam deserved to be defended. I thought Cam was atrocious. I thought Cam was done. I felt bad for Cam, quite frankly, because it was, you could see, it was an athlete that was just losing his powers, right? Cam was not the same athlete he was anymore. He was having issues with his arm strength. You could tell he just wasn't the same guy anymore. He said all the right things to the media, et cetera. So I truly did feel bad for Cam because it wasn't like he wasn't trying. It wasn't like it's for lack of effort. He had just lost it as an athlete. But with Mac Jones, it seems like it's 50-50, right? Like half the fan base is defending Mac. The other half wants to move on from him. But it's definitely, and I get why, because Mac's the younger player than Cam Newton was. But there is a strong portion of the fan base and a strong portion of the media that does believe that Mac Jones is like this franchise quarterback going forward. And it does feel like from my perspective, at least one of the things that Cam Newton, and like I said, this is not really about Cam Newton. I don't think that Cam Newton was a good player for the Patriots. Okay. That's why I'm bringing up Cam Newton when I'm talking about Mac Jones here, but Cam Newton was never, never defended in terms of what he didn't have to work with. Right. Remember Cam Newton's receivers, Julian Edelman played six games. Jacoby Myers in his second year coming into his own. Demir Bird, I don't even know if he's in the fucking league anymore, that guy. And Nikhil Harry. It's not like Cam had weapons either, but we make all these excuses for Mac Jones. There were no excuses for Cam Newton. And I, I'm not telling you that I was defending Cam Newton. I'm telling you that Cam Newton was bad, but nobody was defending him except a very small portion of people. With Mac, it feels like we're all defending Mac. We're all making excuses for Mac. And the interesting thing to me just going forward with this whole situation with Mac is, are you sure you believe in the potential, right? Because the Pats have a backup quarterback right now in Bailey Zappi that isn't a super talented guy, right? We can all acknowledge that. There's a reason he was a fourth round pick. There is a reason he didn't play in the SEC or the Big 12. He's not a super talented guy. But does Mac look much better than him? And does Mac look much different than him throwing the football or anything from a physical perspective, right? Because it's not like when you look at him, you say, okay, well, his arm is really strong or he can get outside the pocket and make plays like Justin Fields does. No, he can't do any of that. And the one thing about Mac in terms of his limitations, in terms of his arm strength, he can't be late. Mac has to read the field perfectly because he cannot be late and not turn the ball over. If he's late, it's going to be a bad result for the Patriots. Like Josh Allen, for example, or Justin Herbert, for example. Those guys can be late. They can see something late 
in the progression and they can still make the throw because of how strong their arm is. So there isn't that same thing with Mac Jones, right? And look, I was never the biggest Josh McDaniels guy, but of course that adds into this whole situation. I'm not denying that whatsoever. And I'll get into some of the issues with Patricia, but the question becomes with Mac and the lack of a ceiling, if you will. Well, how does he get to be like a top 10, 15 quarterback in the league? Because right now he's not there. And I just look at like the prototype of the Mac Jones, not super big, not super athletic, doesn't have a super big arm. Like how many of those guys have been like elite level quarterbacks? Like Drew Brees is one that comes to mind where he wasn't great with the Chargers. He was good in his final year there, but he wasn't great. And what worked for him was the scheme, right? He gets there with Sean Payton. It's a lot of short passes. He becomes the most accurate passer in NFL history, but that's a scheme. They always had a great offensive line. They always had weapons to work with, and Mac doesn't really have that at his disposal right now. So he's not going to overcome some of the issues that you have on the roster. He's never going to be able to do that. So that's why I just referenced this in terms of comparing Cam Newton to comparing Mac Jones to just look at it and say, that's how bad this offense has been. The offense and the quarterback have both taken a step back. So I do want to get into some of this in terms of just the Patricia aspect of this and the offense in general. Because the whole idea is to make your players better, right? Get the most out of them. And who has Patricia done that for this year? The biggest glaring thing to me is the weapons, right? We knew Jacoby Myers was a pretty good player coming into the season. And we look at a guy like Ramondre Stevenson. Does anybody credit the breakout of Ramondre Stevenson to Matt Patricia? No, certainly nobody does that whatsoever. But the one thing that sticks out to me is what he hasn't gotten out of these weapons, right? So, for example, Kendrick Bourne. And Kendrick Bourne last year, 14.5 yards per reception. He's down to 11.9. His yards per target, 11.4 down to 8.8. That's despite the average depth of target going up, 8.5 to 10.6. So that shouldn't be the case, okay? You look at the yards per game, 47.1 down to 20.9. And... A lot of it has to do with earlier on the season he wasn't playing him, right? And one of the big things that jumps out to me is they're not using Kendrick Bourne where they did last year. In times, they just don't play the guy. But if you look at the short passing game last year, right, zero to nine yards. Last year, he was targeted, or excuse me, he was targeted 40 times there, and he had 32 receptions. So 32 receptions in that area of the field, 10 yards per reception. Well, this season, you know what that number's at? Seven receptions on eight targets. He's only been targeted eight times in that area where he was really successful last year. That's a coaching miss. Why aren't you using that guy in that particular situation? So that's one guy where we can definitively say they have gotten way less out of Kendrick Bourne that they did a season ago. That's on Matt Patricia. Okay, how about Nelson Aguilar? Now, some of the outlying numbers are better, right? Catch rate is up, but he's actually the lowest in terms of receptions per game in his career. Yards per game, went down from 31.5 to 28.4. So Kendrick Bourne, not getting the same level of productivity you did last year when you thought, oh, this is a guy that was a really nice find for you. Nelson Aguilar, basically the same player you had last year. Yeah, he had some moments like that unbelievable catch he had, but now he's losing snaps. So him and his bloated contract, you're getting nothing out of that. All right, Hunter Henry. So they finally got him going against Indy, four grabs on four targets. He had two receptions in the previous two games combined. But Hunter Henry, 35.5 yards per game last year. He's down to 26.7. 2.9 receptions per game down to 2.1. This is the big one to me. The Patriots suck in the red zone. We told you about this. Nine touchdowns down to one this year. One touchdown for Hunter Henry, okay? So again with Henry, it's short and intermediate center of the field. So zero to basically 19 yards. 2021, that's 48.8% of his targets. 29 receptions on 38 targets. That's a 76.3 catch rate, and that's four of his nine touchdowns this year. That short to intermediate center part of the field, zero to 19 yards, only 33.3% of his targets down to down from 48.8. Seven receptions on nine targets. He was targeted there 38 times last year, just nine this year. By the way, seven receptions on those as well. So they found something that worked last year with Hunter Henry, and they're not using it this year. It's the same thing that we mentioned earlier with Kendrick Bourne. So Hunter Henry and Kendrick Bourne were really nice players for this team last year. You could argue Kendrick Bourne was really underpaid with his production, and maybe Hunter Henry was overpaid a little bit, but he was a good tight end of the NFL. Neither one of these guys have been producing they were a year ago, 
and they aren't being used in the same way they were a year ago. That's coaching. That's on Matt Patricia, the offensive coaching staff. And then you look at a guy like Jonu Smith. Okay, well, maybe they can get something out of Jonu, right? Well, 18.4 yards per game up to 19.3. What a significant improvement for Jonu. 10.5 yards per reception down to 2.6. So again, this is the second consecutive year where they haven't found a way to use Jonu Smith. So of those four, I thought Bourne and Henry were locks to be good players for this team last year. And maybe, maybe you can get something out of Aguilar or something out of Johnny Smith. Imagine if you got something out of one of those two guys, you're getting nothing out of either one of those two guys. And the two guys you thought were going to be good, you're not getting the same production whatsoever. So that's just a massive mistake from the Patriots. So the other thing that I would look at right now is, well, okay, so you have Devontae Parker playing. Well, how good has he really been? His catch rate is 55.6%. That's 87th of 96 qualifiers. Four interceptions when he's been targeted. Only Deontay Johnson has more. We know about his contested catches, right? Well, he's got five and 11 targets and again, four interceptions. So it does feel like, and look, this is not supposed to be a massive indictment on Devontae Parker. It just, is this the guy that really fits with Mac Jones? Is this the type of player that should be fitting in with Mac Jones and the Patriots in terms of his skill set? I don't think so. I think the type of guys you want are the Kendrick Bournes of the world, the guys that make things happen after the catch, the yak monsters, if you will. And if you look at Devontae Parker, it just doesn't seem like it's worth the fit, right? It's He's not an efficient receiver. He doesn't really fit what your quarterback does. So that was like the big move from Matt Patricia's perspective. Let me get the ball to Devontae Parker more instead of building off what worked last year. Hunter Henry worked. Kendrick Bourne worked and Patricia has found a way to make those guys significantly less effective in the offense and quite frankly, at times not even involve them in the game plan whatsoever. And then you look at, well, what have they gotten out of their rookie, Tyquan Thornton? You have one of the fastest players at the receiver position of the NFL and you barely use them. Nine receptions in five games so far this season, which is just a troubling thing. And then the other thing, in fairness to Mac Jones, is... The pressure, because now it's a personnel thing as well with all the issues they've had on the offensive line, right? So if you look at Mac this year, on 30.8% of his dropbacks, he's been pressured. That's 27th of 41 qualifiers. So it's not that bad, but here's the past two weeks, 38.2% and 38.6%. Only eight quarterbacks this season are getting pressured more than 38% of the time on their dropbacks. And Mac's been living in that neighborhood the past two weeks. So if you look at it so far this season, it's affecting basically everything they want to do in terms of when Mac is pressure because we know he struggles against pressure so far this season. But his first three games when, okay, yeah, he was turning the football over, but at least you were getting some productivity. Mac Jones is getting pressured on 26.1% of his dropbacks. The past two weeks, his last two starts, that number's at 38.5. So this is another issue with this team where Patricia is coaching the offensive line technically. We know he has help from Billy Yates. But the offensive line has been a complete disaster, right? I mean, you start to think about it. They benched Cole Strange. They were in a situation where Isaiah Wynn got benched and then he came in for Cole Strange. Kajust was bad in that game the other day. So the offensive line has taken a step back. The offensive line has not been good for this team whatsoever. And that certainly is affecting the quarterback as well. But again, this sort of comes back to Matt Patricia. And if you look at Mac, I just don't feel like there's a plan with the quarterback right now. So if you just look at his intended air yards by week, so you go to week one, he's at 8.8. That was eighth of the NFL. You go to week two, it was at nine. That was eighth of the NFL. Week three, it was at 12. That was second of the NFL. So there was this sort of idea, let's throw it down the field a little bit more. And part of that was he was protected better. You look at the past two weeks, 4.5 air yards per attempt. That's last in the NFL. Week nine, 4.4 air yards per attempt. That is second last in the NFL. So now it's not just a scheme issue. It's actually a personnel issue as well up front where the group that Matt Patricia is in charge of has gotten significantly worse this year as well. So this isn't a whole big Matt Patricia thing. But the thing that I just cannot get over is... It does sort of make sense that you have a guy that has never called offensive plays at the NFL, that his background is really on the defensive side of the football, that he would have this Patriots team looking like the Patriots team that we saw with Cam Newton. And remember that year, nobody blamed Josh McDaniels because we sort of understood that it was more about the quarterback than it was about the guy calling the plays. 
This year, I think it's a combination of all those things. The quarterback has taken a step back, and the offensive play caller has not helped the team whatsoever. And one other thing just on Patricia that really irritated me in that game the other day, if you look at the Patriots, they're 22nd in the NFL in a rush EPA, so that's an efficiency stat per play basis, et cetera. In that game the other day, they were last in the NFL this past week in rush EPA and first down. Minus 0.483 expected points added per rush, which is absolutely horrible. That is something that sets up your quarterback to fail. And by the way, Tampa's last this season in terms of rush EPA on first down at minus 0.284. The Patriots minus 0.483 the other day. Why did they keep running the football on first down? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. In fact, you're actually setting up your quarterback to fail on second down because you're doing nothing on first down. All right, a lot more to get into. We'll get into a team with much better news in just a second. We'll chat with Michael Pina from The Ringer about the Seas, who are suddenly red hot. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, senior staff writer at The Ringer. It is Michael Pina. You hear him on The Ringer NBA show as well. Michael, how are you, man? I'm doing great. How are you doing, man? I'm doing well. The Celtics are starting to play a lot better. A couple hiccups there early on in the season. But the big thing to me right now is Tatum, right? Because Monday night against Memphis, it kind of felt like that game was personal with John Morant playing on the other side. He blocks Ja twice. And what we saw in that game is he outplayed John Morant. But it does kind of seem like we heard in the offseason he was really upset about the way things transpired in the finals. He wanted to get back out. He wanted to prove everybody wrong. And the other thing I'm noticing, Michael, it does seem like he's kind of got this chip on his shoulder where he kind of wants to prove that he should be in that upper tier of superstars in the league. Is that the vibe you get from Tatum early on this year? Yeah, I think that losing in the finals how he did might be the best thing that's that could possibly ever happen to his career um he as you said he took it personally had a great off season and i think he's made a leap this season i mean statistically you can say that of course in a lot of different ways and i see you've been tweeting about it for the past couple of weeks um but it's just also having watched almost every minute of his career um it's really hard to find any weaknesses right now with him and for my money i said this uh earlier this week but for my money like he's the most complete player in the nba and i know i have to parse that i'm not saying he's the best player in the nba i'm saying he has the fewest weaknesses like from top to bottom three level scoring rebounding passing playmaking um all defensive caliber um intensity guarding any position, any player. He already has 15 blocks this season, which is like absolutely <laughs> wild. Um, I mean, th- like scoring on the perimeter, post-ups, pick and roll, uh, ISO, in-between game, mid-post. Like it's, it's, he's just like a perfect basketball player almost. He's getting to the line this year, finishing at the rim, shooting 81% at the rim. Um, I don't know what the weaknesses are. And so I don't think he's the best player in the NBA, but I think he's gone up this level where he's the most complete. Like, I I don't, uh, is that like a crazy thing to say to you? No, I don't think so. I said the other day, right, the only guy, like the two-way player that I would take over Tatum in the league right now is probably Giannis, and that's pretty much the list. I mean, because you can make an argument, and I would, that like Luka's a better all-around maybe offensive player, but Tatum's like an A-plus defender right now, and he's one of the best help defenders in the league. And then you look at guys like Curry, obviously what he does offensively, we saw him in the finals. Like, those guys are better offensive players, but if you're talking about a two-way guy, I can't really make an argument for anybody besides Giannis over Tatum right now. I mean, that's where I think he is. It's sort of like, I'm not saying he's definitely going to win the championship like Kawhi did in 19, but it kind of feels like that way, where he's an elite defensive player and he's an upper-tier offensive player as well. Absolutely. And I think just mentally, the way he reads, we saw this development last year in the second half for sure, but the way he reads the floor, the way he sees a step ahead um, I've noticed this year, like he cuts to pass where he cuts, catches the ball and then knows what he wants to do with it before the defense can react. Well, he'll kick to the corner. He'll kick out to an above the break three point shooter who's wide open. Um, 
I, I just am so impressed with his poise and yeah, like he's stepping up in moments at the end of games, like his dunk block at the end of the Cavs game. They lost that in overtime, but that's like the most impressive like two-way sequence that you'll see out of anyone. Um, you mentioned the John Moran, him going toe-to-toe with John Moran, who's having an, another spectacular season and just not letting Josh score in isolation, which is incredibly difficult to do. Um, he's been incredibly impressive and he's averaging what, like 31 points a game efficiently. Like it's like, you're kind of envisioning now where you're seeing this ceiling where it's like, okay, Tatum's going to be like on the all defensive team one year when he's 28 years old and also shoot 50, 40, 90 and average 28 points a game. Like he's just, he's incredible. And we're talking about someone who made first team all NBA last year at 24 years old. Yeah, and he's the second most efficient high-volume scorer in the NBA. And remember last year, so early in the season, or not early in the season, for a couple of months there, he was not shooting well from the outside. And now eventually, after March, that changed, and he was basically hitting like a ridiculous amount of his pull-up jumpers. But now he sort of started that season that way. Now his three is not where it was at the end of last season, but he's getting to the basket more, as you point out. He's shooting way better on twos than he was last year as well. And one thing that I really like about him is... He is taking on these matchups. He wants these guys defensively. And the other thing that I noticed in the game against Memphis is for the first time, like all season long, I'm going to give Joe Mazzulla some credit for something he did defensively. He took Tatum and he put him on Clark, right? So he was almost using him in like that rover role, like not the same way that they used Robert Williams, but Tatum, from my perspective, as I alluded to, he's such a good help defender. And you could tell last night in the game, Tatum knew, okay, I don't really have to cover Clark that much so I can sort of cheat off him. And he was kind of mucking things up defensively. I thought that was a really interesting wrinkle that Missoula used last night. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, we all know about how effective Tatum can be switching and he unlocks um, you know, the Celtics are obviously switching more than any other defense again, on ball, off ball. They're pretty, you know, they're not as good as they were last year at it, but I think these things take time. Sometimes we're integrating new players. Um, but you make a great point about the off ball stuff. And I mentioned the 15 blocks and he's just been everywhere and he has such a long wingspan. Um, a lot of length, a lot of quickness, great anticipation, um, and yeah, like you look at these numbers and you said he's incredibly efficient and yet he's shooting 28.6% on pull-up three so far. So like there's still room for improvement there. Um, if you believe that the two-point stuff is is uh, sustainable, which there's no reason why it shouldn't be. And I think his patience in terms of drawing fouls is like the biggest step to the next level that he needed to take. And he's doing that right now with a career high nine free throw attempts per game. So offensively the total package defensively he's it's hard to just you know you can't really rattle off too many on ball defenders or off ball defenders wing defenders versatile defenders who are um more complete than him that can fit into more situations than he does so he's just been tremendous so far for the celtics all right so then jalen so seven turnovers in that game against memphis he's now 28 assists 32 turnovers just on the raw numbers this season bottom 20 in turnovers per game And this was one of the things that you wanted to see the Celtics sort of clean up, in particular Jalen clean up. And it does seem like, especially in the game against Memphis, Michael, it just seemed like these are the same turnovers we've seen year after year. And it felt like, I mean, he was really forcing the issue when he really didn't need to. What have you seen so far from Jalen in terms of the turnover issue again? Yeah, I mean, you know, some of those are... He's like really he catches the ball on the go on the perimeter and he just cuts call for traveling and like a lot of guys are getting that this year and he's particularly antsy, I think, just because of how the Celtics are like how wide the driving lanes are right now for the Celtics. It's kind of intense with all the threes that they're shooting and the stress that they put on defenses. But yeah, going back to the playoffs, like I think his biggest issue is obviously driving into crowds and then kind of throwing the ball away, not keeping his head up, not seeing all the reads and the options. And I mean, with Jalen, he's such a brilliant, um, inventive scorer when he gets downhill and he can do so many things because he's so athletic that I think that it kind of just is like, this is who he is. And you got to, I don't want to like say that he's a finished product, of course, because he's what, 26, 27 years old, but I don't think he's ever going to be this polished playmaker. I think that when he gets downhill, when he turns a corner off a ball screen or a catch and go, he's looking to score. And I can't really like 
blame him for that, to be honest with you. Um, and that's kind of also what the Celtics need. I think he makes the simple plays and knows how to do that and has made baby steps since his rookie year, since his second and third year as a playmaker in those situations. But I'm personally like not ever expecting him to be this high-level decision maker. And the Celtics, thankfully, don't really need him to be that ever. Yeah, I'm with you. And I do think that it's fair to say, I don't want to say like plateau, but I don't think he's going to get significantly better. Like when we watched Tatum last year, we saw a leap and then we're seeing another leap this year. And being in your 26-year-old season, I don't see him really cleaning up. Now, maybe he cleans it up on a game-to-game basis in terms of the turnovers, but I never really see him being a good passer. But this is what we do know about Jalen is Jalen Brown is good enough to be the second best player on a team that makes it to the finals. So with the leap that Tatum makes, I don't think it's like too concerning that Jalen Brown isn't going to take another leap, especially considering now some of the overwhelming depth that the Celtics team had that it didn't have a year ago. Yeah, and I mean, when I look at the rest of the roster, you know, you bring in Malcolm Brogdon, who is just kind of like unfair as a third ball handler on this team in those lineups where they go super small and will will go super small in the future. Um, and like, he's kind of the guy who gets those playmake will get those playmaking responsibilities in a big series like the NBA Finals if they're fortunate enough to get back there when Jalen kind of can't. Um, handle some of that stuff, handle some of that heavy lifting. But then also you just see there's other guys on the team. Like I, I cite Grant Williams, honestly, him off the bounce, um, making plays. Um, just someone who, you know, obviously a catch and shoot threat, but someone who can put the ball on the floor, get into the paint, see what's going on, throw a lob, kick it out. This team is just full of those types of players. It's why they have the best offense in the league right now and why – they're generating so many great looks from behind the three-point line. So usually Jalen is kind of the guy who, when he catches it, he's the exclamation point on the possession. And that's just, that's fine. I mean, that you can win a title that way, as you said. Um, so I don't think it's too concerning. I mean, obviously some of the turnovers you want to clean up a little bit. Um, but he's, you know, he's, he's Jalen. He gets really difficult shots and he makes the game look easy when it isn't. I know his shot making at times during the postseason last year was absolutely <laughs> ridiculous, like a complete flamethrower. But speaking of Brogdon, you bring up. So if you look at Brogdon, he's averaging the most drives per game on the team and he's playing less than 24 minutes per game. But I really like sort of how Joe Mazzulla has handled this situation, right? Even last night when he switches up the starting lineup, it's Grant that goes in. But we know that there's an injury history there with Brogdon. So I feel like it's good to keep his minutes down. But the other thing is, I really think like you need Brogdon on the floor in the non-Tata minutes. Did you think that he would have this type of impact immediately with this team? Because this is something like this drive game. They didn't really have this last year. I mean, and this guy is one of the best in the league over the past couple of years of just like getting into the lane. He's forceful. He can finish around the rim. He's a really good passer when he gets in there. I've just been awfully impressed with everything I've seen from him. Yeah. I mean, when they made the trade for Malcolm Brogdon, I didn't think that it was like it was cheating, honestly. Like I thought Derek White, when he came in, it was like a perfect fit. And um, in terms of absolutely everything that the Celtics team need, that Tatum and Jalen in particular need. And throwing Malcolm Brogdon into the situation, who's like, when he was in Milwaukee, I think he had a 50-40-90 season. Like, he's a great shooter. And so the looks that he's getting are absolutely fantastic. When defenses are forced to pay attention to Tatum or to Jalen or even to Marcus Smart, when Marcus and Tatum run their pick and roll that's basically unstoppable, and you kick it out to Brogdon and he can just... I mean, it's just like he's never been in a situation like this at this point in his career. And, you know, he's coming from a situation in Indiana where he's he's the guy. He's got to create everything for everybody else and score. And right now he he doesn't. And I mean, he the, you mentioned the minutes, which is just really fortunate for him. Twenty three a game uh, down nine or ten from last the last two seasons. And injury history is for sure. Um, a concern right now and going forward so he's just like this luxury item right now in the regular season where it's like they don't really need uh, a Malcolm Brogdon type of talent but he fits so perfectly into everything that they're doing right now he's a huge reason that they have the best offense in the NBA and bringing him off the bench is just I keep saying this but it's just like unfair (laughs) yeah it really is and one of the things like you mentioned 
he doesn't get the attention that he did in previous years when he's with like some of those garbage Indiana teams. He's even said it. He's talked about it. It's like bizarre to him that, you know, all these teams are focused on Jalen and Tatum and then Brogdon's doing his own thing. And he's, I mean, it's been a great ad. Somebody else that I've been interested in is Hauser, right? Because, so I'm going to read you these numbers, which are ridiculous. The Celtics with Hauser on the floor, 130.11 offensive rating, 106.13 defensive rating, a plus 23.98 net. He has hit 56.3% of his three-pointers. Now, I get these numbers can be really noisy early on in the season, right? Especially the defensive ones with Hauser. But just that shot maker that the Celtics really didn't have last year outside of Tatum and Brown, I do feel like it really helps out their spacing offensively. And I've been really impressed with the way that he shoots the ball. Like, every one he shoots, I feel like it's going to go in. Yeah, it's really funny that you say that. I was thinking about that the other day when I was watching the Celtics. And whenever the ball leaves Hauser's hands, that's that's you literally think it's going to go in every single time. I feel that way about maybe. I mean, I don't. I want. I don't want to like bore you right now and list all the players, but it's like Steph, Desmond, Bain, Clay. Even though he's shooting twenty eight percent every time the ball leaves Clay hands, I think it's going in. KD. Like I don't think Hauser's like uh, on that level necessarily yet, but. Great start, great stroke. Um, he had a buzzer beater. I think it was against the Wizards. I can't really recall. Um, and he's just tremendous, um, uh, tremendously accurate from the outside. And the spacing that he creates for all those guys is why everyone's having so much success driving the ball, why they're creating so many spot-up looks, um, why the offense hums when he's on the floor. Absolutely. Yeah, one of the things I found interesting last night is on the broadcast, Sean Grandy, the play-by-play voice of the Celtics on the radio, filling in on the TV last night as well for Mike Gorman. He was talking about he feels like when Hauser's on the court, the opposition is getting like obsessed with going after him. Like they want to they find a weak spot in the defense, they want to try to go after Hauser. And Marcus Smart confirmed it to Grandy that essentially he thinks the teams are getting like this idea in their head that we have to go after Hauser when he's on the court. Do you get that sense watching the games? The teams are almost getting too distracted by trying to attack Hauser and it's actually affecting them negatively offensively. I personally haven't um, picked up on that. Um, you know, I try to, I, I'm watching the whole league. So like <laughs> that, that's like a really granular detail. Yeah. Um, but I just found it funny when they, when granny mentioned it, I'm no, like, I'm going to start mean, paying attention to this more. Absolutely. I think that that's something that you kind of wonder about. And I, I wonder about personally when I compare the regular season to postseason NBA basketball, where postseason is just it's all mismatch hunting now. And you just kind of hunt whoever's the weakest link on the defensive side and put them in a ball screen and go to work. And I feel like that's not necessarily the most efficient way to um, run your offense in the regular season and guys like Hauser, I'm not saying he's a weak defender, but more like if you watch the Miami heat, for example, Duncan Robinson can play in a rotation. Absolutely. He's not going to get hunted on every possession because it takes teams out of how they want to run their offense. So I don't, I don't think it's wise to attack Hauser. I mean, he's a pretty big body too. Um, he might be slow footed relatively speaking, but from what I've seen, he holds himself up pretty well, um, on an Island and he's really smart and intuitive. So, that, I don't think that's the greatest um, way to attack the Celtics defense. Yeah, well, if they want to keep doing it and the results stay this way, I'm fine with it for the opponent to keep doing it. So the big question or one of the big questions coming into the season was the backup five with Rob missing all this time. And Al's actually played really well in November. They're keeping him on ice, not playing back-to-backs, which is great. But you look at what they're getting out of these backup minutes. They've gotten essentially nothing out of Blake, which I was not a, the biggest fan of that signing to begin with. Cornette, I haven't been awfully impressed with him. I mean, Vonley, this guy's just a foul machine. 7.8 fouls per 36 minutes. So, I mean, he can't stay on the court. So what do you think they do here? Do they just hold their nose until Rob gets back? Or do you think they'll make a move to try to add another big eventually? I don't think you want to add another big just because of how the roster is constructed. And like this team has championship aspirations. And so I understand trying to get through the regular season and needing as much size as you can. And I think they're second to last or last in offensive rebound rate right now, um, which isn't great. Uh, You know, like Vonley, Griffin, I personally am per- like I'm perfectly fine when Grant Williams is at the five. And I think that they can get away with that um, quite a bit, particularly with how well Tatum has defended. And we talked about that earlier. 
uh, Tatum's rim protection, backline anchoring. Like he's, I think he's up for that task in terms of just taking the next level on defense in small lineups using his size. So I, I don't think it's that concerning to be honest with you. And if you look at some of the lineup data, like, like, you know, Horford is in these lineups, but like the starting fives defense is great. Um, they do fall off a little bit of a cliff when some other guys are in there, but like, I, I, I don't think it's that much of a concern right now. Um, I think that they're kind of weathering it. And when your offense is as hot as theirs is, uh, you can win a ton of games until Rob comes back. And, but bottom line is like, I don't think investing too much, um, in at the five spot is a really great use of just resources in today's game. Yeah. Speaking of Grant, who you mentioned, so he was really shooting the shit out of the ball until the Memphis game where he didn't really shoot until the two free throws at the end of the game. I don't think he attempted a shot in that game. So maybe it's just like because he came off the bench, he's at a different or because he started that game, he's in a different role. But Grant has been unbelievable again, shooting the ball. Do you think it was a mistake not to get a deal done with Grant? Like, do you think that price is just only going up with him in terms of when he enters restricted free agency? I mean, I was joking during the playoffs like he was going to get a max contract offer from the Charlotte Hornets <laughs> if he goes to restricted free agency next year. Um, he's I'm just a huge fan of his game. Uh, and I, yeah, I think the Celtics obviously would have loved to, to, to lock someone like that up, someone who's obviously valuable in a playoff series, whether you're going up against the Sixers and Embiid or or the Bucks and any team with size, really. Um, he can switch one through five. I think Stan Van Gundy called him the best defender in the world last year during, in, oh, yeah. in the middle of the Bucks series, <laughs> uh, which was a great statement. And he's, what is he, first in three-point percentage right now, second in three-point percentage. And I don't think that's sustainable, but I think he's definitely someone you cannot leave alone, whether he's in the corner, whether he's non-corner. And I said this earlier, but the way he makes plays off the bounce now is just so impressive. Like he's his improvement from year to year since he entered the league is astonishing. And this is not even to say anything about the like weird value he brings to the locker room where he's just like the guy who understands that everyone gets to make fun of me and I'm cool with that because it <laughs> loosens the vibe and that's great. And so I don't know what Grant wanted um, on his extension. If it was like, uh, you know, DeAndre Hunter money, if it was a hundred million, I don't, I, I have no idea what he wanted, and I don't know how far apart they were, but locking him up would have been terrific, obviously, and losing him would be, I don't want to say like catastrophic, but he's he's like a critical piece for this team. Yeah, he's really tough to replace. I mean, you got shooting, you got a good defensive player. Now, as you mentioned, he can put the ball on the floor. I mean. When he came out the other night with a hezzy into a spin, I'm like, who the hell is this guy? So the Grant thing is going to be something to monitor going forward. So Mark is smart, and I was exchanging text messages with the boss about him last week where it felt like, I don't know, is he the same guy athletically? Memphis, to me, that was the first like real Marcus Smart game of the season. Does he look a tad bit slower, or did he look a tad bit slower to you prior to that game? Uh, not not to me, I would say. I mean, he obviously played terrifically against uh, the Memphis Grizzlies on both ends. Uh, I mean, he brings it. Def- I feel like he's bringing it defensively um, as much as he ever has uh, this year. I haven't seen every Celtics game, so if there was one where he was a step slow or anything like that, I apologize. But like, look, I think with Marcus um, offensively, you know, I mentioned before the the Tatum smart pick and rolls uh, where, I mean, it's basically unstoppable if whether Marcus is setting the screen or Tatum is setting the screen. And that chemistry right there is just really hard to to create and generate. And the offense that those two produce is amazing. Um, I'm just a huge Marcus person. I, I think he's really difficult to quantify. And seeing him finish, I mean, his two-point percentage is at a career high rate right now. Obviously, uh, the threes are not falling once again for Marcus, which is a shame. But he's just this like uh, I, I think he's just like an invaluable uh, component. And you said earlier that we learned that the Celtics can win the title with Jalen Brown as their second best player. And what I learned last year, what everyone saw, was that they can also win a title or at least get to the finals with Marcus Smart as their point guard. 
and uh, he was wheeling and dealing against the Memphis Grizzlies, making every right decision. And he's just a gamer. Like I, I, I can't say enough nice things about him. Yeah, I mean, he's. We saw what he did last year at times during the postseason. He's really good on Monday. So I hope that was just me overreacting to the beginning of the season. And, <laughs> and we see more of the game like we saw on Monday night against uh, Memphis. Oh, uh, one of the guys I wanted to ask you about was Derek White. So Derek White, I said last year during the postseason, like this guy is incredible at like getting over screens. Obviously, we know he had the confidence issues with the shooting, et cetera, shooting the ball, of course, a lot better this season. But the other thing that sticks out to me about him, Michael, he's incredible in transition, like contesting shots and contesting shots in general with his size. Like it doesn't really make sense. It's not like he's one of these super athletic guys, but it just feels like he always guesses right when he's about to take a charge. And he, I don't know what it is, if it's just like some funky thing that he does, but he always finds a way to like make a layup more difficult than it should be. I I don't know what it is. He's got that 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 like nifty little floater game down, um, yeah. and he takes them when they're contested, which is you know uh, not advised, but he gets away with it quite a bit. And I, yeah, like Derek White, I thought last year was it put in a really tricky situation where he had no playoff experience. He never really played a game. I think he was in the one series earlier in his career against the Nuggets. I want to say with the Spurs. But besides that, I hadn't really played uh, meaningful basketball in San Antonio as they were going through their rebuild and then gets kind of just shipped into Boston. And once he gets there, like two weeks prior to him arriving, they really started to take off and look like a title contender. So he comes in and his role is, you know, there's they gave up a first round pick for him and his role is basically to be this connector who um, really assuages the offense and does all those things that you mentioned on the defensive end where his timing on charges is amazing and he can get, you know, he can recover on pick and rolls over or under the screen without fouling really well. I think he's a tremendous on ball defender, really smart cerebral player. And offensively, he takes, uh, I personally never got too uh, caught up on playing the is Derek White confident uh, game <laughs> last year, which like, Maybe that's on me, and I should have. Uh, but I just always thought his his value on offense kind of spread beyond whether or not he was taking or making shots. I like how he puts it on the deck, drives, drops two, and then kicks, and just keeps the offense moving, um, keeps the ball moving. I should say. I, I I think that that is his role. And when he's not when he's shooting forty percent from behind the arc, like as he is right now, that's terrific. But I just kind of view it as icing on the cake, to be honest with you. And with Malcolm Brogdon now here to do a lot of the things that. Uh, Derek White had to do in the playoffs last year. I think that that role for Derek will just, he'll be easier to, for him to fall into it and excel in the playoffs uh, this season. All right, Michael, before we let you go, you have an article up right now that I think a lot of Celtics fans would like to read. So it is about basically LeBron's maybe possible decline. <laughs> it is, yes. Um, <laughs> You know, I was just looking at, I'm watching the Lakers and looking at some numbers and I noticed that LeBron's uh, true shooting and effective field goal percentage were below Russell Westbrook's. And I was like, okay, that's, you know, it's only been nine games, 10 games, but that is, that's very interesting. I'd love to just, you know, dive in, look at some numbers here. And what I saw was not great. And then you watch a lot of the, you know, watch his post-ups, watch his ISOs, watch his drives. Look at the fact that Sadiq Bay is averaging more free throw attempts per game. A lot of the physical parts of basketball, he's, uh, and the metrics that measure it, he's kind of dipped in ways that are really concerning. I think that his three-point shot, he's shooting 21% on seven attempts a game. That's not sustainable. It'll go back up. He's a way better shooter than that. But the drives are very concerning. The way he... uh, you know, used to when he would post up, just completely obliterate and melt the defensive coverage. Like you'd send two, he'd find the open man. He'd make passes that were like perfectly timed as the defense was coming to double him. And now it's like he's kind of doing things to prove that he's not aging, if that makes any sense. And he's forcing shots, and he's not reading the defense as not as well, but as as willing as he used to. And I don't know. It's just uh, you know he. I, I don't think any single player in basketball. I want to be clear. I don't think any single player in basketball could save this Lakers team. I think they are just—it's over. Like they're 
for my money, the worst team in the Western Conference, honestly. Like, I would not be surprised if they finished with the worst record in the Western Conference. The roster is terrible. So he's got a lot of issues with what's around him, but he's not the person who can come close to even getting them to the play-in anymore, is what I think. And I could totally be wrong. He's like one of the best players, one of the two best players who's ever lived. But uh, what we've seen so far has not been super encouraging, I'd say. Well, I hate to hear that as a Celtics fan. I wish I wish LeBron all the success. That is Michael Pina. Make sure to read that article at The Ringer, among others as well. Michael, thanks so much for the time, man. We really appreciate it. Brian, thank you so much for having me, man. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Great stuff from Michael Pina on the Seas. Cannot wait for this game coming up on Friday night. I know the Celtics have the Pistons on Wednesday, but I cannot wait for this game against Nikola Jokic and that Nuggets team on Friday night at the Garden. All right, we have time for a call. That number is 617-396-7172. Again, that's 617-396-7172. Hey, Brian. Uh, Eric in Portland, Oregon. I have an idea for for the Patriots fans. Um, You know that thing NBA fans do? Sometimes that's kind of annoying where, like, when the star player from their team goes to the free throw line, they start chanting, MVP, MVP. And uh, as a side note, not to be grumpy old man, but, like, I feel like there was a time when NBA fans used to be a little more judicious in when and how often they busted that out. I feel like it happens all the time now. Like, it happens in November. Like, let's pump the brake on the MVP chains. But anyway, at the next Pats home game... Whenever Nick Falk comes out to kick a field goal, I think the fans should just start chanting MVP, MVP. Because this guy's the offensive MVP. Like, he's kicking like 16 field goals a game. And that's pretty much it. So, uh, I mean, I don't know where we are without this guy. So, let's, let's give it up. You know, let's show him a little love. Um, that's all. Keep up the good work. Bye. All right. I definitely agree with you on the NBA part of this. It's like anybody that has a good game, you start chanting MVP. It gets a little bit ridiculous to me. But Folk, without him, I mean, (laughs) the guy's been incredible. You go back to he had set that record for the most attempts or most consecutive field goals under 50 yards in a row. He's been really good for this team. But that's the problem, right, that he's been really good for this team. Now, I would disagree on the offensive MVP. I would give it to Ramondre Stevenson because he's not getting set up by his blockers. He's basically doing all this after contact right now. I mean, the guy's been absolutely tremendous, but the fact that we're pointing out how well the kicker has kicked the ball this season, it's an issue because the Patriots right now, as we mentioned off the top, they're 29th in touchdown percentage in the red zone. They've got to figure out a way to finish some of these drives. All right. I did want to transition into a little bit of Bruins because of course, Patrice Bergeron has that go-ahead goal on the power play from his normal bumper position on Monday night, and the Bees go on to win that game. But this is after he had come out and voiced his concerns about Mitchell Miller, about that signing. And basically, less than a day later, Mitchell Miller is gone. So basically, it happens late Sunday after the Patriots game. I mean, we recorded on Sunday after the game. We talked about the whole situation. I said, it's going to be less than a week. It's going to be in a couple days. And it happened on Sunday where they decide, okay, we're rescinding the offer. Cam Neely comes out and he says, I'm extremely upset that we've made a lot of people unhappy with our decision. I take a lot of pride in the Bruins organization and what we stand for. And we failed there. Yeah, it was a massive failing. And certainly the public backlash did not help. But Bergeron, as we all know, the leader on the ice, the leader off the ice. And he's the guy that came out right away and attacked this head on and put it out there like we don't feel comfortable with this signing right and look this was a horrible mistake by the organization just a dumbass mistake by the organization one that they didn't need to make whatsoever 
But the fact that your star is out here speaking publicly right away and holding the organization accountable, it's exactly what you want, right? Because the front office fucked up and Patrice Bergeron wasn't just going to let this go away. He came out and he talked about it. And of course, other players would follow. And the other component to this in terms of obviously this is the right decision to rescind the offer. It should have never been made at the beginning. It's a controversy that never had to happen. But the other thing with Bergeron being the captain of this team, he helped his team on the ice as well. This was a distraction for the team. And obviously what happened with Mitchell Miller was disgraceful. All that was horrible. But it's also a distraction for your team when it appears the Bruins have a really good chance to make a Stanley Cup run based on the way that they've played. And it had to have impacted them in that game on Saturday night against the Leafs, right? Now, not that Toronto is some pushover. We all know it's a very talented hockey team. But the Bruins are dealing with all that. And now going forward, like the organization is going to continue to get questions about this. They held their press conference, etc. But this is done for the players. They're not talking about this anymore. It's over. And I have to give Bergeron and the players on this team credit for actually seeing what the front office didn't see. That they actually realized, no, this is messed up. We should not be bringing this guy to the organization. And they made it known publicly, we don't want him here. We're not having this guy in the dressing room. We don't want him associated with the organization because of what we stand for. So I give Bergeron a ton of credit for that. And the team, of course, won on Monday night. All right. Another thing I wanted to get to is the Xander Bogart situation, because now with the World Series over, we're getting closer to whether or not are the Red Sox actually going to bring back Xander Bogarts as now he's opted out of the contract. So Mark Feinsand, who covers Major League Baseball, had a report early on Tuesday. He said, according to sources, the Red Sox have started reaching out to some teams regarding the availability of their second baseman, hoping to figure out plan B is the likely event that Bogarts leaves Boston. It doesn't seem like they're going to spend big on a shortstop, he adds. So now, obviously, Red Sox fans are not happy with how this whole Bogart situation is playing out. But now we have this report. Wait, hold on. The solution may be not replacing him at all. Actually, they're going to move Trevor Story over to shortstop and trade for a second baseman. All right, so I do want to be fair on this before I go completely nuts. Because what this seems like to me is... His source is clearly someone in one of the organizations that the Red Sox called about in terms of a certain second baseman. And then that source makes the leap that, hey, well, this is actually the Red Sox plan, right? Where the source is saying, hey, they called us about whoever the second baseman was, and this is their plan. This is what they plan to do. When in reality, the Sox were just in. This is what my take from this story is that the Sox were just doing their due diligence, knocking on all doors and considering they couldn't talk to free agents yet, they were seeing like who could possibly be moved by talking to other teams because they can't talk to Carlos Correa. They can't talk to Dansby Swanson. They can't talk to Trey Turner. So that's my gauge on the report. Now, this is me, I guess, in some sense, giving Bloom the benefit of the doubt, which he certainly doesn't deserve. But that's how I sort of read the report. That's my hunch. But either way, this is a fucking PR nightmare again with this team. So if this was the plan, let's just go with that assumption that the Reports accurate that this is the Red Sox plan. They're going to move story over and they're not going to sign a shortstop. When Bogarts, the leader of the team, could be leaving and Trey Turner, Carlos Correa and Dansby Swanson are all in the market and the Red Sox wouldn't sign a shortstop. And the move is to trade for a second baseman and move story over. I mean, this would be a disaster. The story thing doesn't really make sense to me. We all know he couldn't stay healthy last year, and I guess the hand is a little bit of a freak injury. He had the heel issue at the end of the season, but still, he played 94 games. Year one of the contract, epic fail. His elbow was an issue when he was hitting free agency a couple of years ago, okay? The question was, could it hold up? So if you look at it, StatCast, they have a metric for arm strength. So last year, Story ranked 61st of 72nd baseman in arm strength. If you go back to 2021, his final year with the Rockies as a shortstop, he ranked 52nd out of 58 shortstops in arm strength. So this is a trend that's been going on for a couple of years. It's a major concern. He is a great defensive second baseman, but the arm strength is clearly declining. We saw him. He's a really good second baseman. Nobody would dispute that. But he doesn't have the arm strength that he once was, that he once did. And this was something we talked about when he was entering free agency. The other thing is... If you don't sign a shortstop and Story goes there, then he's always compared to Bogarts. 
And that's something that if I'm high in bloom, I have to look at this from Story's perspective. This is not going to be fun for Story if he has to go back to shortstop and be the guy that if you're not bringing back Xander is replacing Xander Bogarts because he's always going to be compared to that guy. And you invested $140 million in Trevor Story. This isn't what is best for the player. The best for the player is for him to remain at second base. So if you're doing that, it's just not going to help Trevor Story. It's not going to help the organization either, right? It's going to make Trevor Story's job more difficult. And by the way, if this does happen, if this report is actually true, well, Heim will be exposed because we'll finally all realize that Story was just leverage over Bogarts, right? Because it sure seemed that way when prior to last season, they just offered Xander one extra year on his contract. And then we found out that, okay, yeah, Story got hurt a couple of times and Xander had an outstanding season. So how big is your leverage right now if you're Bloom? Do you really have this leverage over Xander Bogarts? You really want to use that? You really want to put Trevor Story at shortstop where he has arm strength issues and you want him to be the guy that's going to replace Xander Bogarts? I mean, that's going to be an awfully difficult look for Bloom. That leverage that I think Heim thought he had, I don't think he has it anymore. Now, Bloom, of course, was asked about this, about the report, Xander Bogarts opting out of his contract, etc. He said, quote, bogey's our first choice. That's not going to change. Part of our jobs is to explore every option to the field of a contending team next year and put together a really good group. We need to explore every possible way to do that, but bogey's our first choice. I just can't put up with this shit anymore. Just stop saying this. He's not your first choice. If he was your first choice... He would have already been signed. You wouldn't have offered him a fake extension prior to the season. He is not your first choice. And we are going to find this out in the very near future. Now, I think if you look at it in terms of the Red Sox offer basically last year before the season, the reported offer one extra year. So that's four for 90, 22 and a half million dollars per season. So if Bogarts gets, say, something in the six for $168 million range, $28 million per season and for six years, well, this is going to be a horrible look for Bloom, unless he gets one of these other guys, Correa, Swanson, or Trey Turner. But then you look at it, if he does get, say, something north of $200 million, I think some in the fan base, now people are going to be mad no matter what because it's Xander and what he's meant to the organization. At least you could kind of understand that one, not giving out $200 million to a player on the other side of 30. But the problem is this whole idea of, well, Xander is our first choice. Bogey's our number one priority. If that was the case, this deal would already be done. So now we're going to find out what Boris actually can get for Xander on the open market with these other shortstops available. And if it is something where it looks like, okay, that's a very reasonable contract for Xander Bogarts, then it's going to look really, really bad for Heim Bloom. And it just, it's one of these things right now where do you have a lot of confidence entering the offseason with Heim Bloom running things based on what transpired last year? And I certainly don't. And I really think that he's bad with the media. I don't know why he says this type of stuff when he doesn't really mean it. Nobody is believing him right now based on previous behavior. How can you come out and say he's your first choice when you offered him one extra year prior to the season? That just doesn't add up. So I think he's got to do a better job, and I don't think he ever will, handling the media. Remember, this is the same guy that earlier this season said that when he was asked about losing Kyle Schwarber, He said what bothers him more is missing on under-the-radar guys. That's not something you say in Boston. So again, I don't think Heimblum's gotten any better whatsoever at handling the media. One other note on the Red Sox. How about this one? James Paxton, the Red Sox are not picking up his option. He had a two-year option for $26 million. You could not split the baby on this one. You couldn't just pick up one year at $13 million. So he got $10 million in guaranteed money last year to rehab. He didn't pitch. Remember, he had Tommy John, and then he was dealing with the lat issue. Now, he does have a $4 million option. Is he going to pick that up? Maybe he thinks he can get more on the open market, if you will. But this, to me, is just a really, really bad look for High and Bloom. How do you tell ownership about this? I mean, what's the conversation like with ownership about this? Yeah, hey guys, no big deal. We just paid him $10 million. He gave us fucking shit, and uh, now he's going to go to a different team, possibly. Well, you don't want to bring it. Well, we the option was at twenty six million dollars. I mean, this is just a dumbass deal to begin with. You were trying to win a World Series last year. At least that was the goal for everybody else not named Heim Bloom. And you actually gave out this type of contract. I mean, this is me more getting fired up about last year than it is about this offseason. But what a complete mess. And when it comes to the pitching in general, 
The Red Sox really need to land a front end of the rotation guy. I've been telling you that for months. They didn't want to do it last year. You have got to do it this year. You got to figure out the Evaldi and you got to figure out the Michael Walker situations as well. I think Nate actually may take the qualifying offer just based on health issues. And maybe you can get a deal done eventually with Nate, but he may take that qualifying offer. But you got to get one of the top guys, whether it be Verlander or just won the World Series, whether it be Carlos Rodon. I know Jacob DeGrom's an injury risk and he's got, you know, He's going to have a lot of suitors, as is Justin Verlander, but you have got to make a splash when it comes to the rotation because you can't keep piecing it together like you've been trying to do over the past couple of years and hoping it works. You got to go out there and you have to pay for proven commodities this offseason. Pay for a proven starting pitcher. Right now, this offseason has started very poorly for the Red Sox, and if you're not concerned about it, I don't know what to tell you. I just know this. If Bloom doesn't knock this offseason out of the park, he's getting fired. No way around it. I mean, look at the past two years. I mean, look at this year in terms of what the result was on the field. Last year, yeah, you made it all the way to the ALCS. That was great. But look at what a dramatic fall that was. You cannot have that happen again this upcoming season. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in. 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172. We're going to be chatting with Ted Johnson on Thursday. We'll kind of get the State of the Union with the Patriots from his perspective. We'll give out some first half of the year awards as well. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.